Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Do Theology podcast. Today, I am sharing with you a conversation that I had with Dr. Heath Lambert, who is probably best known for his work in biblical counseling. And we had just a, a very, I think, helpful and practical conversation about counseling one another in the local church and how we can relate to one another as Christians on matters of opinion. So if you're familiar with the chart, a lot of this conversation is going to take place in the third column, talking about doubtful things. I really do think you'll find it helpful, and I, I look forward to hearing your feedback on this. Remember to rate this podcast wherever you can. If you're using Apple or whatever service you have, rate the podcast, share it with people, like us on Facebook, find us on Twitter. All of that stuff is really, really helpful. If you're looking for a way that you can help us out, those are all free and quick methods to do that. Also want to let you know that this episode is brought to you once again by West Eden. Go to westeden.co, find uh, all kinds of amazing Christian merch that's designed super well and has a great message. And get 15% off with Do Theology 15. Code Do Theology 15 at westeden.co. Check it out. Find a gift there for your wife, for your husband, for your brother, for your sister mom, dad, whoever it is, get a gift, get something for yourself. The code works no matter who you're buying for. Isn't that amazing? Westeden.co, do theology 15, get 15% off. And on the other side of the music, my interview with Dr. Heath Lambert. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? his view heretical. If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Dr. Heath Lambert pastors at First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, and is the author of several books, including The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams and A Theology of Biblical Counseling. He's the former executive director of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and he has served as professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Lambert, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with a really broad question. I mean, eventually I want our conversation to get really practical to the local church. I want that to be the bulk of our conversation, but from a high level view, just to start out, what is biblical counseling or nuthetic counseling as it used to be termed? And what is its significance in the church? Yeah. So uh, I think that biblical counseling is there's, I mean, what is biblical counseling? Goodness gracious. <laughs> that is rocket science. You know, there is, there, we can geek out on this and talk about it for four hours, or I can give you a uh, kind of a rifle shot answer. So here's my rifle shot answer. I'd say a couple things. I'd say uh, biblical counseling is characterized by one, uh, the sufficiency of scripture for problems in living. 
so Christians believe that the scriptures are sufficient, um, and we believe that they are, we believe that the scriptures are sufficient in different ways for different things, actually. We don't, the sufficiency of scripture doesn't have the same relationship to rocket science, for example, mm. as it does to, uh, to counseling. Uh, but we, I would say that uh, the sufficiency of Scripture for uh, problems in living, for counseling, means the Bible tells us what we need to know to understand and help people who are experiencing the kinds of problems that send people to counseling. Uh, I would say, secondly, um, that uh, biblical counseling is characterized by a very practical use of the scriptures. And so this is very important because a lot of people, for example, who go to study the scriptures at seminary, I say with respect as a guy with uh, my fair share of seminary degrees, and I'm, I've, that used to be my full-time gig as a seminary professor, and I'm still, uh, still an, a professor at Southern Seminary. So I love theological education. I love seminary education. But there's a tendency when you go get a seminary degree to learn theory and facts and to miss practice, ministry, practical application. Biblical counseling is concerned not just with theory, uh, but with what Scripture does on the street uh, where lives uh, are lived. Um, and then uh, third, this, this might sound a little bit odd, uh, but I would say that uh, uh, biblical counseling loves and appreciates science and values science, but it takes exception to the fact that scientific research is either our authority, it's not our ultimate authority, the Bible is our ultimate authority, see the first point, uh, or that science is typically what is relevant in a counseling conversation. When people come to counseling, they're not looking for scientific solutions the way they are when they go to get a medical treatment. Uh, you're looking for wisdom issues, you're looking for worldview uh, conversations and those sort of wisdom and worldview issues are exactly what the scriptures are about. So that's um, that's three bullet points on what biblical counseling is. One of your books I really enjoy, a theology of biblical counseling. I thought it was a great idea for a book. You walk through the categories of systematic theology essentially and connect them to counseling scenarios and how um, our biblical theology drives our biblical counseling and. You, you make a statement in there about the value of secular counseling or secular psychology in that they can make appropriate observations, but can never appropriately diagnose issues or, or provide solutions to issues. Is that a fair way of summarizing that? That's a fair way to say it, yeah. Um, now, as we connect this idea of biblical counseling to the local church, in what way does this approach to counseling, biblical counseling, emphasize and encourage church members to actually admonish one another as we're instructed to do in Romans 15, Colossians 3, other places? Right. So um, the issue of biblical counseling, it's in, in many ways, the language is unfortunate. Hmm. Uh, because when you, when you live in a therapeutic culture, like we do. We live in a culture where it seems like everybody has a therapist or everybody's looking for a therapist. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows they need a therapist. And that, that issue of therapy and counseling, it can seem overly niche. It can seem like here's this, uh, here's this category of work that uh, professionals do. And by professionals, we mean people who have been trained. And by people who have been trained, 
We mean people hmm. who've been secularly trained. They went to University of Florida. They went to University of Michigan. They went to UCLA. Hmm. And they have received this knowledge from on, from on high. And now they know more and know better than you know. And that's what, that's what you go to get when you go to counseling. But really, when we talk about biblical counseling, we're not talking about that kind of endeavor. We're talking about life lived. We're talking about um, my wife was on the phone uh, just the other night. I, I overheard her speaking to a member in our church who is disappointed because her child did not get into a school that mm. they wanted the, the kid to get into. And she was disappointed and discouraged. And my wife was encouraging her. You can call that biblical counseling if you want, or you can call it uh, two godly women uh, talking together on the phone about how to respond to a bad situation. Uh, I was just talking uh, earlier uh, today uh, with a woman who's lost her husband and is now just getting used to life without him. And we sat down and we talked. It wasn't, it didn't have any of the formality of a secular counseling conversation, but she was talking about her problem. I was trying to be a comforting presence and point her to the truth of God's word and point her to, uh, uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, that's what biblical counseling mm -hmm. is. Sometimes it happens in a room with a well-trained person uh, in an office, and it's going to last an hour, an hour and a half. Sometimes it happens in the hallway. Sometimes it's happening with two wives who are more or less informed about what the Bible says. Sometimes it's happening with people who don't have the first clue about what they're talking about. And you've got an upset wife uh, who's mad at her husband, and she's talking to her friend, and it's after Sunday school in the hallway, and the unwise woman says to the woman who's frustrated with her husband, leave the guy, you know? Mm. And it's like, well, that's, that is counseling. It's mm. just not biblical counseling. It's not faithful counseling. And so when I say the language is unfortunate, this language of counseling can sound overly formal and miss the fact that these kinds of conversations that are exchanges of wisdom are happening every day, all day long with every single person in your church. They're happening with you. They're happening with me. You can call it counseling if you want. You can call it conversations. But the real issue is, what is the bedrock of wisdom in that conversation? Well, a Christian is going to say, I want that wisdom to be informed by Scripture, ultimately, fully, and finally. Right. Uh, and so that's what biblical counseling is. It's the conversations all of us are having in our congregations every day, all day long, and we need those conversations to be founded on Scripture and pointed in the direction of Jesus. So technically speaking, then, every Christian is a counselor. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You wouldn't even say technically. You would say anytime there is a conversation where a person with questions and trouble and problems is having a conversation with somebody they perceive to have answers, solutions, and help, that's a counseling conversation, and it's happening all the time. The only issue is not, not whether the conversations are happening. Uh, the only issue is what is the source of uh, wisdom that is informing the worldview and is the wisdom that is informing the worldview, is that something that Jesus thinks is good or something that Jesus rejects? Hmm. Yeah, that is very simple to grasp and I think vital. There's that fly again, just attacking me. I, I want to kill this thing by the time the interview's over. Uh, that, the, um, uh, that, that is so simple, it's so easy to grasp that in every conversation, if someone's got problem, a problem and someone else is providing a solution to that problem, 
That is, that is counseling. And it's so true. And, and it, and it's what we are to be doing in the church, right? I mean, people right. are to bring their problems to other people in the church and there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That's what scripture says. Um, right. in, in a recent interview, you were discussing how Christians are called to relate to one another and serve one another in matters of opinion. And you spent a good deal of time talking about the law of love. So could you describe what the law of love is and how does that factor into biblical counseling? Yeah, so uh, Jesus says, uh, a new commandment I give to you, uh, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That's the law of love. And so uh, it's John 13. Uh, this is, it's fascinating statement because Jesus says it's a new commandment, and yet you go back and you do your devotions in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm you're going to find out that Moses tells people to love your neighbor much of the time, a lot of the time, and that uh, Jesus is actually going to say in, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, that, hey, when you boil down the law of Moses, it's a law of love. So Moses and Jesus both say that uh, love is an old commandment. In fact, it's the basis of all of the commandments. And yet then Jesus is going to mosey on up in John 13 and say, here's this new commandment that you love one another. And so in what sense is the command new uh, if it is indeed old as affirmed by Jesus himself? And, and what's new about it is what Jesus says. He says that you love one another even as I have loved you. And mm. so uh, it's not as though the language of being loving uh, or doing love is new in the Bible. What is new in the Bible is the standard of love. And so here is God. My goodness. I mean, here is God who has left heaven and come to earth, and he is in the midst of living this perfect life to earn righteousness for people, and he's going to go and die on the cross to pay for the penalty of people, and he's going to rise from the grave, and all of that is in love. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, in 1 John 4, uh, you know, you hear God is love, and in this is the love of God that he, that his son was made manifest to us. And so the newness of the command is in the giving of the son, the giving of God's own precious son to love us. And so what you've got is you've got in the law of love a command that we must lay down our lives for ourselves. That revolutionizes your life. It revolutionizes my life. And to answer your question, it has everything to do with biblical counseling in the local church because um, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, one of the main reasons we don't have the kinds of conversations that we've been talking about. my husband left me, or I want to leave him, or I'm sad because my kid didn't get into the school that he wanted, or my husband has passed away. One of the reasons we choose not to have those conversations because we don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have to know, what we have to admit and confess is that when I say, I don't care, if you call me, if I see your name coming up on my caller ID, and I know you're going through a hard time, and I go, oh man, he's going to want to talk about that thing that's going on. That's my third conversation this week with him, and I don't feel like having it with him again. We, we assign the blame for that to you. Why, why is he calling me? 
what Jesus would say is, no, you're responsible for that. You've got a, you got a law of love problem. You are not willing to lay down your life um, uh, as I laid down my life for you. And so when we really understand Jesus's law of love, we'll understand that uh, uh, these, uh, these conversations are conversations that we are absolutely required to have. Mm. Amen. Yeah, that's so good. Now, so many issues in the church are uh, matters of opinion. <laughs> and uh, I like the way the New King James translates it in uh, Romans 14.1, doubtful things. Uh, don't quarrel about doubtful things. And uh, I think this ties into the the counseling issue in the local church, because there are a lot of times when people bring issues up that are matters of opinion, or they're doubtful, and there is no solid answer, and people are throwing out ideas, and then people start arguing and debating. Uh, and, and it ends up being less helpful than uh, if it was maybe framed in another way. But, you know, we have no shortage of these kinds of issues in the church, and they're getting more and more complicated. So, so how does the law of love factor into those types of conflicts when, you know, maybe someone's bringing something up to you, or maybe you feel like you need to confront somebody on something, but it's actually more of a doubtful thing or an opinion rather than something that's solid? I think that what you just asked me about um, is one of the most crucial issues uh, for pastors to face, for people in ministry to face. I mean, I'll just tell you, so here at, at our church at First Baptist, uh, we've got we've got 22 pastors on the mm -hmm. team. And I, I don't even know how many times I'm saying to people, you know what, that is an interesting perspective. But that's not a biblical principle. That is that is a preference that you've got, and you you've got to. It takes a lot of discipline to troll the difference between my principles and my preferences. Uh, I, I think one of the easiest things for men and women of conviction to do is to graduate our preferences into principles and assume that my way equals God's way. Uh, it is, it's incredibly damaging in ministry. It's incredibly damaging to my soul. It's incredibly damaging to uh, the people that, as a pastor, that I'm called to shepherd. Um, and so I, I, I think thinking through this is, uh, requires a couple of things. First of all, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, so the sufficiency of Scripture is, is our dear friend in this. Listen, mm -hmm. I'm telling you, when, if the people from my, uh, in the leadership at my church, if they hear this, they can go do something else while they listen to this part because they've heard me say it a hundred times. Uh, <laughs> the sufficiency of scripture means um, God gives me the words that I need. He gives me every word that I, does not, that I need. And if he hasn't given me the word, then I don't need it. Uh, I am not required to obey words that aren't from God. Uh, I am not guilty of sin when I transgress your preference. I'm guilty of sin when I transgress God's law, God's principle. And so what we have to do is we have to be very, very steadfast on this and say, okay, has God said that? And if God said it, then we're bound to it. If God did not say it, um, then as leaders, we need to be very, very careful not to pass off my way as God's way. And as hearers, we need to be set free, that it's not, it's not my job to be under the traditions and commandments of men, as Jesus said. It's my job to be under, under God's law. So just as an example, 
we I just was talking with some parents here. We've got some parents at our church. We've got, we got everybody you can think of in our church. We've got parents who are homeschooling their kids. We've got parents who are sending their kids to private Christian schools. And we've got parents homeschooling their kids. And you have a debate with some of these parents about which ones are better. Uh, we're being more faithful because we're homeschooled. We're being more faithful because we're sending our kids to this Christian school. We're being more faithful because our kids are being salt and light in public school, or whatever it is. I mean, everybody gets in a fight about this. And what they're doing is they're graduating preferences and situational concerns into the issues of principle. The reality is what God says is that I am responsible for the education of my children. I am responsible to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The Bible absolutely positively stops short of explaining to me how I must do that. And so what that means is since God didn't say it, then he is leaving it up to the wisdom uh, and the dependence on the spirit of the Christian who is considering. So we, we've made a decision as, as parents, not judging anybody, uh, read Romans 14. I'm not, not judging anybody. We've made a decision as parents that public school is not going to be an option for us. Some good friends of ours at our church have made a different decision that it's best for their family and for their honoring of the Lord and their commitments uh, to go to public school. That's fine. As long as you're getting Deuteronomy 6 and, uh, and those kinds of passages right, that's fine with me. After we made our decision, we've spent time sending our kids to Christian school. We've spent time homeschooling our kids. Next year, we're going to have one kid in Christian school and two kids in homeschool. So we're totally uh, schizophrenic uh, on, on the school decision. But, but we can make adjustments based on wisdom and situation in life because our principle is the Bible that we've got to bring our children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And we can have individual moments where there's wisdom concerns and we can have individual preferences. But what we got to do is honor the principle. And it's very easy for people to say, well, because I am a Deuteronomy 6 Christian or homeschooling or something like that. And that is, that is going further than, uh, than the Bible allows you to go. It places burdens on people uh, that they that they can't withstand, and that would be a violation of the law of love. Well, it seems like in matters of opinion, there are kind of two categories within that category where you have some issues that are more stagnant. They're always kind of the same. Like a, a very popular one is the Christian and alcohol, mm -hmm. right? So alcohol doesn't really evolve. Alcohol is alcohol, and the principle is pretty much just standard. Christians can drink, but they can't get drunk yet. If you have a conscience issue, then don't, don't go violating your conscience because whatever is not done from faith is sin. And, and everything's kind of in place and has just stayed in place from generation to generation on that issue. Yeah. But then when you get to something like schooling that is so subjected to the influencers of the culture, yeah. that's an evolving issue where the public school conversation, for instance, isn't the same today as it was 30 years ago. I mean, it's not even the same as it was five or 10 years ago. Okay. And, and so how does the evolving nature of the more cultural issues? And, you know, if you want to, you can <laughs> stick your neck out there and talk about COVID and Trump if you want, but, but how do these more cultural issues make it more difficult to have that conversation? Yeah, so situations always do change, and this is where this is where this actually the good news about this is it points to the abiding relevance and authority of the scriptures. So 
so the Bible is not written in a way that is culturally constrained so that it makes sense to uh, ancient nomadic cultures, and it doesn't make uh, any sense in a modern culture with parents who are using their Teslas to drop off their kids at a charter school. Like mm-hmm. it's like there are there are principles in the scripture that are uh, that are uh, equally uh, uh, useful no matter the season of uh, the no matter the season of the place that you're in. So just as an example to talk about what you're mentioning, so I did not grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't have any Christians that were in charge of me trying to weigh this. I'm a product of public school. Um, and look, I'm just telling you in Eastern Kentucky, let's see, I graduated from high school in 1998. We're having this conversation in 2022. So you do the math 24 years, 24 years ago, I graduated high school. And so, and so I started, you know, in kindergarten when I was five. So, you know, this would be that 30 year window that you're talking about. Listen, the only Christian influence I had in my life was a public school. I, hmm. I'm still looking back. I remember Christian teachers that I had before I got saved as a freshman in high school. In high school, uh, the the librarian, several of the government teachers, social studies teacher, a couple of math teachers, my choir teacher, they were the strongest Christians that I knew hmm. uh, before I got saved. They prayed in class. We had C with the pole. And there were times when we sang hymns in our public school. That was Eastern Kentucky. 30 years ago. That's not, I mean, I'm sitting right in the smack dab middle of Jacksonville in 2022. Not many people have that experience today. And so what Christians have to do is weigh um, all sorts of factors. A, a parent who is, um, you can imagine a single mom, for example, who desperately wants to bring her children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and her favorite thing to do would be homeschool but making $25,000 a year uh, all on her own, she is going to have to send her kid to public school and she's going to have to sit down at the dinner table uh, when, uh, when the day is done. We're going to have to talk about, okay, what did that teacher say? Mm. Uh, what did you hear about from your friends? What did they show you on their phone? Mm. Uh, we're going to have to talk through all those things. And that mother is being faithful, even though she doesn't have the resources of say a married couple with a stay-at-home mom and an insurance salesman dad who makes $300,000 a year and they can send their kid to an elite public school. The biblical principles are going to be relevant. Uh, it's just, you just have to apply them based on your changing circumstance. Hmm. Well, one of the major difficulties that Christians face is knowing when to confront or rebuke or to separate from other Christians. And I think it's fair to say that the COVID era has amplified mm-hmm. that uh, struggle. <laughs> yeah. um, And Christians have separated over some more opinion-like issues. Uh, Masks and vaccines, those cause lots of controversy, and lots of people have found new churches because of the differences of opinion that they had with the church that they had before. How can a Christian discern what's a matter of freedom and what's a genuine threat to Christian unity? Or, Or how, to put it another way, how can a Christian know when to lovingly tolerate a different opinion, as opposed to regarding the opinion as the tip of the heretical iceberg that, yeah, there's an opinion there, but below the surface is a heresy that's going to destroy this church. And so I have to rebuke and confront. How, how does a Christian discern that? Yeah. So it's it's an incredibly appropriate question because we are, listen, we the culture is moving in the wrong direction. Churches and denominations are moving in the wrong direction. 
COVID scared the daylights out of everybody. I mean, some people were scared about government intrusion. Some people were scared about dying. Some people were scared about, um, I mean, it was, there was all sorts of things that people were, were frightened about. Uh, there, was, there was hardly any person that wasn't afraid of something. And so, so things seem like they're going in the wrong direction. And in the midst of that, I will just say, listen, I'm a, I'm a theologically conservative man. Um, I, there aren't many people to the right of me. And if you can find somebody, uh, tell me, cause I want to change. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I want to be faithful. I think the Bible has no errors in it. I think men should be pastors. I think, uh, homosexuality is a sin. I, th- I mean, you name it. I mean, I am, I am staked out on the, uh, on the theologically conservative and I would say theologically faithful, uh, wing of things. As true as that is, I look at a lot of my people who are standing over here with me, and I agree with them on the issues, but there's this anger uh, with conservatives right now. And it is not a good thing. Uh, the Apostle James says the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And there's this anger that is this reaction to all the bad things that are happening. You see, churches getting fewer people and church budgets getting smaller and being less effective in reaching people and the culture freaking out. And the response to that is not to be angry. The response to that is Jesus says the kingdom is going to expand. Jesus says, uh, Jesus says the, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in all the nations of the earth before I return. I mean, kingdom growth is not over. We, we are people who have fundamental faith and hope and love. Those are the three sort of cardinal virtues in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And, uh, uh, and we need to remember that. And so, so I, I haven't answered your question yet, but I'm, I'm diagnosing a larger problem that there's this angry conservative out there that wants to blow everything up and scream and yell, and it is not going to work. It's not going to reflect the love of Jesus. It's not going to win people to Christ. It's not going to be a, a pleasing aroma. And so we need to find a way uh, to be really, really conservative and really, really faithful and not also reactionary and angry, but hopeful and faithful and in a good mood about what King Jesus is doing. Who And he didn't quit saving people 10 years ago. Like he's, he's on the move and he's Amen. working. I think as we, as we are happy uh, conservatives, um, I think what we need to do is, I, I love that threefold theological triage that, that roams around, where there's, there's primary issues, and these are issues of heresy. Um, this is, if you, if you violate these things, you can't be saved. So this is deity of Jesus. This is substitutionary atonement. I, I would put uh, biblical inerrancy in here. Because Amen. If you've got a Bible that has errors in it, then we can't trust what it says, and if we can't trust what it says, then we don't know about anything else. And so, so those primary theological issues, you cannot be in a church where those things are happening and you've got to get out. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm in favor of you getting out in, in a loud way and calling people to repentance and saying, this is not right. Uh, secondary issues are, um, are issues where you are a Christian uh, but good people could disagree on these things, and good people, in fact, do disagree. So uh, this uh, baptism is a great 
great example here. Uh, I am a Baptist. I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, if you are at First Baptist Church and you want to flick water on the forehead of a baby, God bless you, but that's your fault. We got Baptist all over. The, you know, it says First Baptist Church on the sign. And it's you can be saved if you believe in baptizing babies. Uh, I've got good friends who believe that and are saved, and I know they think I'm saved even though I'm dunking adults. Um, but we're going to do things at at our church that they're not going to do at a Presbyterian church and vice versa. And so that's where we can say, hey, people of goodwill can disagree on this, but it's just best that we go to the Presbyterian church down the street. Uh, and then third is tertiary issues where these are just things that Christians need to find a way to be able to talk about without fighting about. So um, the return of Jesus, we don't know what the details of that are going to be. There are good Christians who are premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists, and, and we need to be able to find a way um, to, uh, uh, to disagree on these things without getting into a fight. After that, this is sort of a new category that has entered in with COVID. There are going to be decisions that our church is going to make that everybody's got to decide if they're, if they're comfortable with. I pastor a church that was very uncomfortable with mask mandates, was very uncomfortable with quarantine mandates. I mean, very uncomfortable. That's their preference. It just so happens that's my preference too. I'm not lecturing anybody. I'm not throwing any rocks. Um, if I was the pastor of a church uh, that um, I am the pastor of a church where our preferences lined up and we were okay. I, I know there are people who were frustrated with me and they wanted more masks and they wanted us to not come back as quickly as we did, uh, but we were able to work those things out. If I was the pastor of a church in uh, Northern California, uh, I would have had to have found a different way to love my congregation mm -hmm. than I did. Um, all of us are going to have situations, though, where leadership doesn't do it exactly the way we want to do it. I would hope uh, that most Christians would go, you know what, I can live with that. As long as they're teaching the Bible, as long as they're mm -hmm. being faithful, I can live with that. If it gets into a matter of conscience and if it's just something, you know what, this is just such a distraction, I got a category that you could go to a place that is um, that's going to be more helpful to you. you Got to be careful if you start picking churches like Cereal and Cereal Aisle. You're going to have a problem. <laughs> you're always going to be moving. But if you do it, you should do it quietly and not undermining the integrity and the and the character of people that you're leaving. But you should try to leave as happy as you can. So that's a really long-winded answer. I hope it was helpful. No, oh, yeah, no, that's good. And and of course, there is that real danger in examining the political agendas that are behind everything. And on the one hand, it's necessary. On the other hand, it's dangerous. And yeah. so it requires a level of biblical maturity uh, that sadly, not not a lot of people have, at least on social media. <laughs> you know? Well, that's, social media is a microwave and not a crockpot in terms of uh, theological deliberation. And I do think that's a good point. I do think that if, as long as we're not talking about one of those primary issues, and for the most part, as long as we're not talking about the secondary issues, on those tertiary issues and on those issues of preference, you know, my church painted the auditorium a different color than I wanted it to, or they wore masks longer than I wanted them to, or not long enough. Most of the time, you should cool your jets and allow for a season of thoughtfulness and reflection and prayer 
usually those third and fourth level issues, three, four, six, eight months out, they don't feel as urgent as they did mm. when you were really hot under the collar. Yeah. Well, one more uh, topic I want to explore before we finish up. And again, going to our intramural conflicts that we have within the church, the concept of stronger and weaker brothers comes into play. And you've given three tests for Christians to apply to their own lives to see if they might be weaker brothers or sisters. And if we could just walk through those one by one, I think that would be really helpful for our audience. The The first one that you give is you you might be a weaker brother if it almost sounds like a joke template or something. <laughs> Um, you you might be a weaker brother or sister if you look for a law where there is no law. And what do you mean by that? You know, here's the, here's the really risky thing that we have to say as Christians, we're a lot more free than a lot of people want to believe. Amen. Massive amounts of freedom. The laws we are under are the laws of Christ. That's Mm. what the New Testament makes clear. And if Jesus didn't sound the gavel on it, then we're free. Uh, You can eat pork if you want. Uh, You can send your kids to private school if you want. You can homeschool them if you want. You can, you're free. If you want to listen to sermons that are two hours long, you can listen to sermons that are two hours long. If you want to preach a sermon that's 20 minutes long, you can do that. I don't think that's right. I think (laughs) you just did it. See, you just did it. I mean, we are a lot more free than we think, uh, than people think we are. And so the, the person who is looking for a rule, they're looking for a law, and they want you to do it because I said so, or it says so, uh, that's, that's a sign of a weaker brother. Hmm. Yeah, and that is so tempting, isn't it, to make law where there is no law. And the, the second test is a lot like that first one. Every time I go to ask a question, this fly hears me. It's like... It, uh, it's attracted to the sounds coming out of my face. All right. Um, the second test is that when you take that man-made law and you apply it to others and impute sin to their account if they break that law, and yeah. that that's a pretty much a natural consequence of the first test, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that Paul says there in, in Romans 14 is don't, don't uh, judge your brother. Hmm. And so it's this, it's this, it's this sounding of the gavel. It's like um, you did not do it the right way, and so you are wrong. Hmm. Uh, and that is a sign of weakness because you are not. Jesus <laughs> thinks they are more free than you do. Jesus gives them fewer laws to follow than you do, hmm. and that does not put you in a position of strength. It puts you in a position of weakness, and the Apostle Paul calls you out. One of the most fascinating aspects of Romans 14 that I've, I've always found fascinating is the acceptance issue. God has accepted him, so yeah. you too accept him. And when we impute sin to somebody because they didn't keep our law, that's, of course, a fundamental rejection of our brother instead of accepting him. Uh, the third test is asking yourself if you're tempted to do what others are doing despite the personal conviction that you have on the issue, regardless of where your conscience is, you're looking at, well, other people are doing this or that. And so you go along with it. Can you give an example of how that might play out? Yeah. So this is where the not causing a brother to, uh, to stumble uh, is you mentioned alcohol a little earlier. This would be a, this would be a classic, uh, I think, misunderstanding of, um, of how this works with regard to alcohol. So uh, I am 
I am a teetotaler. I don't, I don't drink alcohol. Um, and the reason I don't do that is because of Romans 14, um, uh, among others, other passages as well. But, but, uh, but Romans 14 is one of the reasons why I don't drink alcohol, uh, because uh, Paul forbids me from uh, hating my brother or sister uh, because of what I eat or drink. Um, I am doing ministry in uh, a context of a lot of people who would be scandalized uh, if they saw me having a glass of wine or drinking a beer or taking a shot or something like that. Uh, and so as an exercise in the law of love, one of the reasons I don't drink is because I don't want to uh, upset people or hurt them or make them angry or frustrated. But that is not yet uh, causing a brother to stumble. Um, a, a brother stumbles when not just he doesn't like what you're doing, that's not what it is at all, but, but a brother stumbles when, let's say I believe alcohol is a sin, and I see you drinking, and I think, oh, he's drinking, and so now I'm going to drink. And what I do is, even though I believe it is a sin, I go and do what I saw you do. That's how we cause a brother to stumble. It's when they follow you into something that is not a sin, but they believe to be a sin, uh, but they do what they saw you doing. That's, mm -hmm. that's causing a brother to stumble. Um, and, uh, and when you do that, uh, the person who is the, who is the rock of stumbling that is the potentially stronger brother who is being unloving and is a stumbling block. And the weaker brother is the one who is doing what they ought not to do because their conscience convicts them. So the stronger brother who embraces his freedom and especially the one who has influence over other Christians needs to be extremely careful with his freedom. Absolutely. What advice do you have for someone who may have just gone through those tests in his mind? And he says, I think I'm a weaker brother in this area or that area. What should he commit to in the local church in order to um, help foster an environment of unity and love and not be a nuisance or, as R.C. Sproul says, uh, cause tyranny, the tyranny of the weaker brother? What, what, what should a weaker brother commit to? Yeah, so, you know, in, in, in Romans 14, the first part of Romans 15, the, um, the Apostle Paul, he sides in principle with the stronger brother. Yep. He sides in principle with the stronger brother, and he says, look, you are as free as the stronger brother says, but the stronger brother just isn't allowed to use his freedom to hurt people. Mm. Uh, and so stronger brothers have to be slow and careful with weaker brothers. And then as you're saying, the weaker brother, it, it, sometimes it takes more humility uh, for a weaker brother to repent and humble themselves than it does for a stronger brother to slow down and not do the thing that's offending the weaker brother. So, um, so a weaker brother, what essentially what you got to do is you have to find the freedom that you have in Christ and finding the freedom that you have in Christ is going to be probably a long road and a, and a, and a, a case specific road, like where you're, where you're tripped up, is going to be in specific things that we could, it'd be an endless list that we mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to talk about here. But I'd, I'd say two things. I would say, first of all, when the light bulb goes off, 
that's the grace of Jesus right there. The Lord has already been kind to you mm. and you need to go towards the light <laughs> to, uh, uh, to uh, take another illustration out of context. You need to go towards that light. The Lord is giving you that light. He, is, he has illumined your heart and that is an act of his grace for which you need to be thankful. And as you move towards that grace, I would find an older, wiser, stronger brother who can help you on this. Uh, that person is going to be able to give you advice and counsel and books and blogs and all sorts of things to read. Uh, and the other thing that um, that I would say, which is actually even more important than the first one, is you need to read and reread and read again the New Testament mm -hmm. and just find out who Jesus is, find out what he has done, find out what uh, the freedom is that he has purchased for you, find out what his laws really, really are. Uh, and so grow in love and in following Jesus. So if we were to sum it up, I would, I would say what I'm hearing you say is the role of the stronger brother is to protect the conscience of the weaker brother, not cause the weaker brother to stumble while also being willing to inform on those issues. Yeah. And the role of the weaker brother is to not sin against his own conscience, but also to learn about the issue that to see if maybe the Lord will change his conscience. Is that right? That's a great way to say it. Well, what parting advice do you have for Christians who seek to rightly admonish one another without infringing on one another's freedoms in the church, but to be good sources of counsel without being tyrants? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, basically, the two pieces of counsel that the Apostle Paul gives in Romans 14 is to the weaker brother, don't judge, and to the stronger brother, don't despise. Hmm don't despise him. Uh, and so what, what he's doing is even though he, he sides in principle with the stronger brother, he's still making both of them responsible for their end of the law of love. And he's like, guys, listen, if this whole thing called the church is going to work, you've got to love each other. And here is how people love each other when they are at different phases of maturity. Stronger brothers, you got to love people and not despise people who are not as far along on the sanctification journey as you are. And weaker brothers, you can't judge people for doing things that you think are a sin, but Jesus doesn't. Hmm. When, when each of them does that thing, they both undercut the law of love. They both are a clear and present danger to the hmm. church, and they both need to repent. Hmm. Wow. Wise words. Thanks so much, Dr. Lambert, for being generous with your time joining us today. I know this will help a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me. And man, I hope you kill that fly. <laughs> Thanks.